Okay, Andrea Mazzariello, are you ready to gavel this to order? I'm ready, Josh. All right, gavel. So gavel. Gavel. We're following. So gavel. I follow Robert's rules of order on my podcast. Um, so I hope you're okay with that. Um, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure what I'm agreeing to, but I trust you. So. I don't actually know what Robert's rules of order are. I just know it's why people say I motion and I second. Ah, I, 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 I didn't want to say I didn't know what it was. I was a little embarrassed, but you don't either. So, yeah, Well, I, I know enough. I know more than you do, as it turns out, uh, as to what Robert's rules of order is. Uh, I, think it, <laughs> I think it's legitimately like a thing. Like there was a way it's a structure. It's the structure by which I think most a lot of human beings approve things these days in meetings. Um, and there's some guy whose last name or first name was Robert. And he invented it. So thanks to him, meetings take one hour longer than they should. Which leads me to my first question for you, Andrea <laughs> Mozzarello. Coming out of the pandemic, um, I appreciate... Well, first of all, Andrea, thank you for joining me. Have, did you? Is, this isn't your first time. No, we did one about a year and a couple of months ago, right at the edge of lockdown, we did one. Or, or right after lockdown had begun, I think it was maybe late March or early April or something, we did one, 2020. Was it officially a Corona cast? I believe it was a Corona cast, but I know as much about that as I do the Roberts Rules Order. <laughs> well, the Corona casts were sort of like, I, 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 for whatever reason, walled off like three months of podcasts to be like, this is going to be about the coronavirus that we're currently yeah. experiencing. And then I moved out of that. Now I'm back to just regular old concert honesty. Um, Neat. Well, it was, in fact, very much motivated by Corona. And it was in that time window. So I'm going to say that we had a Corona cast. All right, good. Well, um, I kind of I don't have a specific agenda here. I think since we folks know, you know, we've talked about who you are and what you do. And, and you know, your name has come up on my off of my out of my lips on a regular basis. <laughs> for a long time, so I kind of am curious about jumping in and chewing some some more some thicker fat with you, if you're okay this yeah. hour. I don't necessarily have an agenda as to what that fat is, but I'm kind of curious sure. where your head's been. And uh, I also did request. I'm trying to do this moving forward uh, for you to have a question for me, and it feels yeah. a bit self serving, but it's my podcast, so I can do whatever I want. Andrea, yeah, um, yeah. no, but I I kind of feel like. Um, I'm curious about that as a conversation starter. So we can get to that. But where's your head been? How have you been? What have you been up to? My head has been, I think, pretty healthy. Um, I have been trying to connect with people as much as I can coming out of not being able to do that for so long. For example, my parents very generously bought a second place in Northfield where I live, Northfield, Minnesota. And they came out in the fall of 2019 and they left in the winter of 2019, early winter of 2019. Mm-hmm. And then everything locked down. My dad had a heart attack. Their apartment was overtaken by mold and had to be wrecked down to the studs and rebuilt. Boom. So until last Wednesday, I hadn't seen them in a year and a half. And it was just so good to reconnect with them. And that's been where I've been just uh, reconnecting and also connecting, you know, mm-hmm. making people a real priority trying to create a sense of space around things in order for those interactions to feel and be what they can be versus what my agenda for them might be, or where maybe I had them slotted in and my overall program for the day. And that's been really, really good. Mm-hmm. And um, on that, I've been thinking about what I wanted to ask you as far as having a connection with you and everything. Mm-hmm. And I know you talked about thicker fat, wanting to get a little, you know, maybe deeper, uh, more unnerving, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But maybe my, maybe my question's a little softball, but it might, it might start us off in a 
way they could get there. So <clears throat> softball is a legitimate sport, Andrea. I'm not trying to say anything about softball as a sport. You know, sure sounded like the, it. Sure sounded like it. Sure did sound like it. All right. <laughs> it came out that way. That's fine. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I've I've not thought much about softball, so that probably is a problem in and of itself. Anyway, uh, I notice in your writing and in my conversations with you, Mm -hmm. we often talk about and you often talk about change and growth, what I know now, where I am, having gone through X, Y, Z. We've talked about these conversations a lot. We continue to talk about them. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to flip it and say, rather than what would you tell your younger self, given the wisdom you have now, um, what would you tell your younger self about something that they had figured out even then? What have you, what have you sort of been like unwaveringly and confidently and, you know, with real insight, what have you known for a long time? That's a really good question. Um, um, the other one's easy, right? They're like, what would you, what would you change? It's like, Oh God, like we don't have enough time. We don't have enough time in this, in this hour or day or week or whatever. I think I would, well, I, I can, I can answer both the, the, your, your original question is the more interesting one. Yeah. What was I yeah. right about as a young kid? Um, yeah. I think I was very fortunate to have people in my life, you know, um, from my mom to my first percussion teacher, John Wenzel in fifth grade to Larry Snyder at the university of Akron to folks like Tom Miller, who's a steel drum artist who came to my high school when I was a kid to folks like Cliff Alexis, who's a Trinidadian steel band tuner to my time at Ohio state, like uh, all of these things. And then eventually leading to so percussion, like I think the fundamental approach for me was always one of like I, somebody was in my ear early on. And I think this is something I want to sort of touch on with you actually that I want to pick your brain about because I'm getting some pushback from, I'm noticing pushback from generations younger than me about mm-hmm. the sort of hustle mentality um, mm-hmm. or the, the mm-hmm. grinded out sort of culture and music. I had people early on in my life just being like the reason to do gigs is because you're building a, a network of people that you're going to know your whole life. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Like, yeah. yeah, try to make money, <laughs> of course. Like, yes, you got to pay your bills and be nice to buy a beer and new pair of shoes and all of the things that as a, as a school student that you think are important. Mm-hmm. But I'm very glad somebody told me. I was young enough. You know, when you're young and impressionable, it's like you can either have a fully formed idea or somebody tells you something and then you take that and you're like, well, that's got to be right because an adult told me. And, and you're like, and sure. relying on relationships is something that I think my whole life because of my insecurities musically, I'm not a great player, Andrea. And I can say this objectively speaking, I'm the worst player in so percussion in, in terms of, and I know it's a, it's, it's not a zero sum game and I'm sort of being reductive about what music making is and it's all, it's not execution all the time, but sometimes when you're playing Steve Reich or David Lang or um, Steve Mackey or Caroline, sometimes you got to be accurate <laughs> and execute the goddamn thing. And I, for me, that has always since fifth grade. I've always had the slower hands. I've always, mm. I've always had to like go practice the extra hour when no one was look, looking. And so when yeah. I'm in the room with people, that's why I, I lean on humor and mm-hmm. um, just like familial familiarity and familial sort of um, yeah. vibes. And so when somebody 
when I react against that, like right now in my, my personality has had a hard time dealing with, with a lot of the stuff the last year, because I think I'm right about that. (laughs) I think Mm -hmm. I'm right that, that your human interactions, your relationships for better or worse, whether or not they've, somebody said something inappropriate to you one day, if I cut everybody out of my life and never played a gig with anybody who said something inappropriate around me or to me or about somebody that I didn't know, I'd have zero people in my life. Mm-hmm. And I think I've always, and it's not to say like you need to just defer and, and give the floor to someone who's being a dick, but I think having a slightly more nuanced decision-making process about that is something that I've just had beat in me from day one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad because now as a 41 year old, I'm around a lot of people who aren't the best musicians in New York. <laughs> They're all people who have prioritized building relationships. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of my, Mm -hmm. part of my friend field is people like Joan Tower. It's Steve Reich. It's Caroline Shaw. It's all like, it's not like I have like a generational family. Right. That's my generation. Like there's world war two vets. I, I am friends with people who lost kids in Sandy hook, but Mm -hmm. I'm not uninterested in ever being in the room with Alex Jones just to be like, can you talk to me? Mm-hmm. Like you're I not th- uninterested, or you're not. I'm not else. uninterested. Got like it. I'm not willing to throw anybody out with the bathwater if I don't have to. And mm-hmm. so anyway, and I'm not saying that there's that doesn't complicate things, and there's not issues that arise from that particular approach. But on the whole, I think 19 year old Josh was right by taking every gig that I could because I might mm-hmm. meet somebody that I might need 25 years later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the pushback that you're getting is about treating the hustle more, more what more logistically more. I think it's misdiagnosing what the results, like what your payment, what the currency of the hustle is. Mm -hmm. Um, I think sometimes like there's a push. I saw there was a push online to start a database of every gig that you've been hired for to put up all of the information, like how much you got paid. Sure. Who paid you? how like all like all of the specs about that stuff and i i understand like i get i understand the right. impetus to want to want to learn that information it's also reading an in an in, in incomplete data set and drawing conclusions from it like hiring and music it's just like it how that stuff happens is so tricky and so like every gig i've i mean i've i've played a lot of gigs for tips mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i feel like as a teacher if i encourage my students to play for tips that i'm actually being unethical Mm-hmm. And I think I'm right about it. I think I'm right. Mm-hmm. 19-year-old Josh mm-hmm. would not be in so percussion if I didn't play for tips outside of Angel Falls Coffee Shop for a year. You know why I know that? Because I'm Josh Quillen, and I experienced it. And I'm. it's not <laughs> like if I had taken one less gig, I wouldn't be in so. Or if I had taken four more gigs, I'd be in a better group than so. Mm-hmm. My approach, though, is what led me to be in so. So it's a little frustrating when students are just like, I don't want to... Like, I should be paid union scale every time I play a gig. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think there's a lot of basketball players who feel they should be paid like Michael Jordan or LeBron James. But you've played one professional basketball game. He's played thousands. <laughs> like, there, there, there is a... I just think it's slipperier, slipperier than just saying I didn't get paid $192.57 for this mm-hmm. one-hour service. Therefore, the system is fucked, and I think we need to burn the system down. It's like, hmm. 
Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I've often felt like when I look at um, folks that are younger than me who are composing, um, I mean, by and large, large, I'm really encouraged by what people are doing, saying, thinking, I'm really encouraged by that. I noticed in myself a few years ago, a bit of an allergy to what I thought of as professionalization at a very early point in Mm -hmm. in in the game. And I don't necessarily feel as frustrated by that as I did then. Then I thought, wow, this is cart before the horse kind of stuff. Mm. Just focus on your craft, put your head down, build your community, not network, but community, right? And then everybody rises and everything sort of works itself out. But I started to look back at my own suspicions of that from my current vantage point as a person who has a really good job during the year and a really good job during the summer. And I can't honestly say that because I played for free outside a department store in Brooklyn, you know, which I did. I, and, and lots of really, you know, I took a lot, I played a lot of, you know, empty rooms. Um, I think that was really, really important, like you're saying. But I also don't think that there are a lot of jobs like the one I have to go around. And I can, I can just say, um, this, is, this is the path to get there. And I did it this way, so it'll also work for you. I understand people feeling like, whoa. Mm-hmm. there's a, there's a mountain to climb here. You know, I'm not sure that that's exactly what you're saying though. Well, it's Josh, for me, about- the, 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 the tricky thing I think I'm trying to wrap my head around is I think I'm trying to hold, I think I, I want to have the right to hold two separate thoughts in my head. One is yeah, you've yeah. asked me how I got to where I got to. And I'm telling you, it was 5,000 mm-hmm. days of decision making <laughs> and 10,000 hours of practicing 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. At Yale, locking myself in a room and not mm-hmm. going to parties when I wanted to. Not that mm-hmm. I never did, but like like not doing a lot of the things, being away from family. Like mm-hmm. now, like, yeah, it's a grind and it fucking blows. Like what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think this is awesome? That's the that's <laughs> my problem is like, I think you think this is awesome 100% of the time. Right. Walking on stage at Carnegie is a blast. It's an honor. It's a privilege. I'm standing on the same stage as Paul Robeson and mm-hmm. Judy Garland and like heavies and, and Harry Belafonte and like, yeah, it's not lost on me. Mm-hmm. But the reason I'm comfortable standing where Paul Robeson and Harry Belafonte stand stood is because I've played in the stone when the air conditioner is broken <laughs> 15 times. Right. You've played there once and you were like, this is an inappropriate work environment. Y- yeah. Yes, it is. Hmm. But it's ours. <laughs> you know, and the other thing is just like, all right, I don't think, I mean, John Zorn isn't a billionaire and the stone isn't rocket science. It's a shitty room. Or at least I, I don't even know where it is now, but it's like, so do your own thing. Mm-hmm. Like make a thing, do a thing. And I just, I'm, I'm a little confused by the like i think fear shuts a lot of people down real quick and then then like it becomes this like well these things are doing this thing and i can't possibly do that thing it's like well you're missing the process mm. arnold schwarzenegger doesn't look like he looks like because he well he might have taken steroids but there's a there's just a lot of like boring <laughs> boring arm curls like you know and and i i feel like i'm trying to have the thing as a teacher of like you got to do the boring arm curls Hmm. That's, that's interesting. I, uh, I mean, so I think composition is a little bit different, uh, in a way, uh, like, you know, 
practice making eighth notes with your pencil over and over again until they look perfect isn't really a thing that I advise. So I think it's a little bit different than developing um, a, a physiological approach to an instrument. But I often say that to use the Arnold Schwarzenegger example, which I've never used, and I don't know if this is true, but I bet that there was something about those arm curls that really lit that guy up. And that if you find the thing that makes all your neurons fire and that feels really good, the line between like labor and pleasure is a little bit blurrier. Mm. And so I wonder a little bit about this idea of like muscling it through or doing something that doesn't feel good, et cetera, et cetera. I, I kind of think the the human body and the human mind is a pretty good, if we could clear out all the noise calibrator of having found a thing to do that will be ultimately healthy and, and pleasurable and blissful, et cetera. Um, I used the example at Sosie a couple of years ago of the time my son was drawing rockets. I didn't tell him, hey, to draw a good rocket, you got to draw like a hundred rockets in the next week. But he drew a hundred rockets. It's not because he wanted to get good at drawing rockets it's because something about drawing rockets really got him going, right? So I wonder a little bit about, I personally in my teaching wonder about advising younger composers and students to disregard that flag that's like, this kind of sucks, you know? I reserve also the right to hold two things in mind at once though, because uh, it's not to say that these things aren't difficult, but if if the prerequisite condition, i.e. I found my rocket ship drawing is true, then you'll make a whole lot of rockets when the air conditioner is broken or when you don't have the color crayon that you want or whatever. So I take your point and I love, first of all, I love the idea of like both things can be true. This is something that I'm really, really into uh, as far as discovering my own binary thinking patterns mm. saying, is it, is it really the case that it's either or in this case? I, I just wrote an essay last week that was about the way that I often hear people say something and you can tell they would say, but, but instead they say, and, because it's kind of a thing mm -hmm. you say, and in a kind of deliberate way. And it, it, it communicates that the, the idea of a fork in the road has been replaced by something bigger. I really, really like this idea. Mm -hmm. And so when I find myself in moments where I, I want two things to be true, it's like, yeah, Yes. When I find myself in those moments, um, I wonder if it's either or, and I think it's either, I think it's both. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. And it's one of the things too, that again, like all of this is in the context of at, I'm 41 on June 29th, 2021. And I also reserve the right. Whoa, that's tomorrow. No, no, no. Right now I'm 41. No, I'll that's today. Today. I thought you were telling me your birthday was tomorrow. My Even though today's the 29th. No, my worst. birthday is July 11th. I'm good. We're we, I still got a while till I'm 42. But and by a Not while I mean two weeks. Two um, weeks. Happy birthday, pal. Thanks, buddy. Um, today I, and I don't then. feel a day over 75. <laughs> <laughs> you look good for 75. Uh, but I also want to reserve the right to be able to change my mind tomorrow. Yeah. And yeah. that's the other thing too that I think um, is a little frustrating with. I'm, I'm, I'm having this sort of like, what was I like as a student? When you asked me that question of like, what did yeah. you get right? I'm just like, boy, was I, 
Was I yeah. the student that I'm currently being driven crazy by? Oh yeah, I was. And I don't think yeah. I I don't think I was. I I generally I don't want to say um subservient, but I was very much a submissive student in the sense that like at least when I was going to school, the overall men and especially as a kid coming from Ohio going to Yale, yeah. like I was like I can't believe they're letting me pay $22,000 yeah, yeah, yeah. to come here. Pour, so, pour the things in my brain that you have. Yeah. So <laughs> I was just like, even yeah. if it's crazy and I think you're nuts, like just dump it in and I'll sort it out later. Um, yeah, and yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. served me well. And that's, I wish more students would sort of just not see college as an a la carte service oriented uh-huh, uh-huh, experience. Uh-huh. Like where yeah, you're plugging and in. And not a customer at work. Cause then we've become customer service folk exactly. in, a, in a way look there's nothing wrong with doing customer service work right i mean i've done that work too but uh higher ed college university life feels like if it's driven by earnestness and curiosity we don't get into the same kinds of tangles as if it's driven by um i would like to purchase this widget from you kind of stuff well, that's the problem i mean i think i think where musicians are where performing musicians and composition processes overlap is the sense of like it's not a results oriented thing necessarily mm-hmm. because what are the results Process. yeah yeah what yeah. are the results you have a piece well that piece isn't actually anything until it's played and then mm-hmm. it becomes the rest of the thing that you want it to be yeah and then even that but then what if that's a bad experience what if it doesn't go well yeah. what if the audience yeah. hates it okay but maybe part of the process is to then get up the next day and perform it again Sure. And then the next day, and that's how, like, where you, when, when you say that, like, this sucks as the sort of barometer for where, whether or not you're doing the right or the wrong thing, like Mm -hmm. sometimes the thing that sucks is the way to sharpen your ax to actually do the thing you want to be doing. And like, for me, it's like 2am load ins of Bobby Previtt's terminals was enough. I genuinely thought about quitting. Yeah. That load in is so bad and the gear is so extensive that you feel like complete dog shit when you're playing it. Yeah. But it's also awesome and I got to play with John Modeski. So And it's also awesome. Yeah, so so like for me it's like that sucky part. Yeah, it's part of it. I, yeah. I, I I so how but again, it's like it's an individual thing how how you judge that. I'm 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 saying I'm glad I stuck with it. I hear you. And I feel like sometimes students don't trust me that I'm glad. <laughs> you no, know? trust is the word that I was thinking about. And, and reciprocally, I want to trust my students to know when they're in a situation that is not productive. And so for me to say, you should trust me more than you trust yourself about this particular situation, that's hard. You know, I mean, I, 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 I generally think that I put a lot of trust in my students and I encourage them to go back to what you said a moment ago about products to think about a score or a recording or whatever it's going to be as evidence of practice and process and not the product of practice and process. And I think there's kind of a difference there that a piece exists shows what, that you were doing this thing. It just sort of fell out. It's a symptom of practice. It's a symptom of process. Um, that has been my kind of like, guiding light these past few years. Cause I think I was really, really product oriented when I was a student. I, if you'd asked me that question about what, what was I sure about then? I don't know what I would have said because I was a disaster, arrogant, um, 
insecure. Of mm-hmm. course, those things travel with each other. <laughs> really, really intense and driven. But they're good bedfellows. Those those two qualities are good bedfellows. Yeah, it's like two sides of the coin, right? I mean, it was it was awful. I would hate teaching myself. You know. Well, really, you, really would. Some of the things for me as a student, again, like I'm, I want to be careful here to not have anecdotal experiences be proof of how yeah. a general practice should be done. But again, like the things that have taught me the most about myself and what I actually believe are the moments when someone said, I need you to hold my hand and jump. Mm. You got mm-hmm. it. I've jumped off this cliff a million times and I know right. Yeah, it looks there's rocks everywhere, but I know right where to jump. So we go right through the rocks into the deepest part of the water. Yeah. And it was terrifying. Sometimes I got hurt. Sometimes you trust somebody and it's, and you make the wrong call mm-hmm. and you hit the rocks. But man, it, when it's done right, when it's done well and you, and that, that needle is threaded of like, okay, trust me here. And you hit that water mm-hmm. and you come out the other end. Sometimes yeah. it teaches you how to trust yourself. I don't think, I think, I think sometimes as a human, you don't know, trusting yourself is a process too. And you, Mm -hmm. that's a process to learn. And sometimes having somebody else be like, you don't know how to trust yourself yet. Come on stage with me. Trust me. You're not going to die. I've had tons of students who have come. No, I'm not, I'm not going to play pieces of wood with you guys. That's no. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, just trust me. I'm good enough to cover for whatever things might go wrong with you. Why? Because I've played this piece 1,500 times. So trust, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trust me. And then yeah. they do, and it's a little bumpy, and then it works itself out. And afterwards, they're like, oh, that wasn't bad. It's like, yeah, I know, because I took, why, you didn't trust me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so, but you can't also, as a teacher, approach every situation like that. Um, right. But right. when it's done well, I feel like, I, I don't know. Yeah, the cool thing about composition is it happens in slow motion, so I don't mm. have to have that moment, really. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to get into risk in a moment like that. You know, it's it there is there are risks to trotting a piece out, especially if I think, well, that, you know, that might not work. <laughs> but oddly enough, the process that you describe of I'll be able to cover for the thing that goes wrong, in a weird way, composition is so exposed. And it's mm. like, I have been working with you on this. I think that this works and this doesn't you may see that you may not the only way for us to know together is to put this thing up there to take that risk to trust not even necessarily each other but trust that the process we worked through was worthwhile and then we have a little bit more you talked about data sets before we have a little Mm -hmm. bit more to plug back into our next go you know i remember it happens happens slow yeah i remember real slow we were on when we we're working on the concerto man-made by David Lang. He was talking, he talked a lot about his experience working with orchestras and like in terms of his at bats with orchestras and learning, sure. Learning the sort of economy of like, all right, where's my artistic vision? (laughs) Where's their artistic ability? And where's the clock? Yep. Yep. And where's the yep. stage manager with that clock taped to the music stand that's going to get me, get everybody out of there? And how do I na- navigate that? And so David's like, yeah, early on, I would write these pieces and they'd be super hard and nobody could play them and everybody would be pissed at me. And he's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy with my work. They weren't happy with my work. And he's like, over 40 years or 30 years or whatever, he's like, this piece, I know how to write so that it sounds way harder than it is. Hmm. So that they feel like they're playing super hard music. It sounds really hard. But it's not. <laughs> and and like now, 
again, not to say that everybody needs to write music like that, but if I think as a student, if you are, you want to traffic in the orchestra world, Mm -hmm. it's a different skill set than if you want to traffic in the solo clarinet world Mm -hmm. or the percussion quartet world. There's just Mm -hmm. a, it's a different set of tools you need to come in and sort of build that building. Um, Mm-hmm. And so how do you talk yeah, to your students true. who are like, I want to write an orchestra piece. And like the first thought that would be going through my head is like, danger, Will Robinson, danger, danger, danger. You're going to have 20 <laughs> minutes on a 30 minute piece. <laughs> you know, yeah, like Steve right. Mackey talked about a piece that was premiered at Carnegie Hall. This was like five or six years ago. And he's just like, yeah, it was the piece was 30 minutes and they gave me 20. <laughs> so I had to figure out what parts to rehearse, you know, and just trust they could sight read the rest of it. Yeah. Well, when someone brings something to me, I mean, my, my most common thing is like, I don't know, let's learn about that. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't have any at bats with orchestras. I mean, I do from when I was a student have a couple of things mm-hmm. and et cetera. I mean, I've worked a lot with you guys. I've worked a lot with other percussionists. I write a lot of solo music, a lot of small music, and I write a lot for myself. Um, and so in a sense, I have to know as a teacher, not to make it completely idiosyncratic and personal, but to, I need to know as a teacher when, where the limits of my knowledge sort of cease and think about that reality that you've got the ask on paper, you've got the ability, as you said, and you've got the situation that is bounded. And so how do you teach somebody to make those negotiations in a composition lesson? On some level, you don't. You, you, you don't. You bake it into, you bake the reality of what they're doing into the process and the practice that we talked about. But if you both believe that the score is evidence of practice and isn't the end of the story. And that moment when you're on stage with the orchestra for 20 minutes for your 30 minute piece at Carnegie Hall is really important. There's a conflict there. There's a conflict between music as something that arises as a result of you doing good things for yourself in your studio. And then music that's going to, as you said earlier, have some currency and traction in the world as something people can listen to and engage and think about and write think pieces about and mm-hmm. like and walk out and all these other kinds of things, right? Um, and so what I don't want to do is send people into a situation where they don't realize what the stakes are, right? Back to what we talked about with risk and trust. Part of what I need to do is communicate what the risks are even what the risks are of studying with me. Cause there are, I'm not, I don't teach like everybody, you know, I teach like me and you got to be honest about the limits of your own knowledge and perspective and experience. Um, I think students find it frustrating sometimes too, where they're like, wait, so we're going to, we're going to do this together. And mm. the answer is, yeah, you know, I don't, I'm not coming down from a mountain. I'm not, I'm just down, I'm down here with you trying to work things out. I'm just trying to learn these things for myself. I'm trying to have a process that's healthy for me. Right. I want to get up in the morning and think like, yeah, this feels really good. I want to sit down at an instrument or at my notebook with a pen and feel like what just happened was really, really special and engaging and, um, leads to more things that are that have the same tenor, that have the same affective value for me. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, I was just, I, I thought of another, th- uh, to your original question for me about like, what did you get right? There was a yeah. thing I used to say, and I think it started when I was in grad school, mainly because I think and now in hindsight, I was absolutely reacting to the culture of, of at the time, mm-hmm. which when I was in grad school and in undergrad too, was very much a like, 
you are here to, it's like you're in the farm team to be either an orchestra player or a solo performer or a uh, college teacher. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. don't do any of those, then maybe you get to the major, you get to the minor leagues, you can be a band director. Like mm-hmm. those were the things, right? And everything was like, if you're not doing every teacher or that, not every teacher, but a mm-hmm. lot of the teachers I had were like paranoid about what their students were doing. And it's like, oh, my student's working here and my student got this job here. And it, it gave me a lot of anxiety just to be like, well, I don't. Yeah. Because part of me was just like, I barely am able to figure it out for myself. Why do I have to care about everybody, other students' career too? Like, so yeah. what I used to say, what I, I think I started saying when I started teaching at NYU, which was really my first like collegiate teaching experience on any level was like, I don't have any interest in any of you being professional musicians at all Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I can't promise you that I can't get you. I mean, I might be able to get you a gig down the line, but I can't promise you now that you're going to have X, Y, or Z job Mm -hmm. because I barely have that job. And you were telling me Mm -hmm. that that I have the job you want and I barely have it. So like, let me dispel a little bit of the, where you think you're headed here. Um, (laughs) But I do have an interest in you being an interesting human being and being someone who can think through things, you know, Maybe, you, maybe you're not going to be a professional steel drummer, but your experiences in a steel band are going to teach you how to be a better accountant. Like, mm-hmm. And when you put my name down as a letter of refer, you know, letter for a letter of reference, I will write you a letter of reference for any job, musically or non. Mm-hmm. And that's what you can look to me for. If you come to me because mm-hmm. you want a, a job running a steel band or playing a percussion quartet, don't waste your time. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how to do it other than the one single way I figured out for myself, and I'm not giving it up because baby got bills to pay. You know, like 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 not a, only that, but it couldn't work. It's a different world, right? It's a different I mean, it's world. Every, every moment we're in a different we're in a different reality. So, like how I got my my job or or uh, whatever we're talking about isn't going to be relevant to anybody's experience. It's not by definition. It can't it can't be? How could it be? Right. right. And I used to, I used to think I, when I would say that I would have, I would feel guilty because I felt like I was abdicating my responsibility to students. Sure. But I think I was starting to notice this transactional sort of culture in college where right. we, I mentioned the a la carte sort of vibe where now students, because of the culture of the teachers that were coming before them now have an expectation that if I get this degree program from Yale, I will be have a job in so percussion or I will yeah. get a job with an orchestra because that's what the advertisements say. And I feel like I want to change the billboard a little bit and be like, right. come study on, you know, come be an apprentice and learn how to make a, make a violin with Stradivarius. Mm-hmm. But you're not, I don't care if you know, if you make money making violins, you're coming to learn a mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. I have a great job, I have to say, because our students, I don't know how they do it here, but there is some serious generosity of spirit around these parts. It Good. is it is like um, so rare that I feel like someone's being, you know, as you said, a la carte before. It's so rare in the classroom here. I mean, it's just the culture is of just earnest interest passion i mean the one thing that i sort of complained about the one sticking point here is the kind of the culture of busyness and specifically of projecting one's busyness Mm -hmm. and i fall into this a lot i've been trying really really hard to look at that um there's a way that it's some kind of virtue to be overwhelmed when really it's like bad planning (laughs) or or something um 
or particular circumstances or circumstances yeah, like, that, yeah, you've got to kind of move through. I, absolutely. Um, the kind of overwhelm I'm talking about though, is like, I'm overscheduled. I'm, I'm, I'm placing demands on myself that aren't, aren't realistic. I'm not talking about the kinds of weights that some folks carry that are real, that my job is to set down some of that burden to the extent that I can in the latter case. In the former case, though, I think there's a sort of cultural shift that I would like to be a part of in all the institutions that I touch that are like, you know, we, we are going to be um, deeply engaged in what we're doing because we want to be, because we, we know that it's good for us. Not because we have to, not because we need to get to XYZ point or anything like that, you know. Uh, well, we talked about privilege in the Corona cast, and I think mm-hmm. this is sort of, a, this is adjacent to that conversation too, where, um far be it for me to say like you need to relax or something like that is not something that I need to be telling people um, at least in the way that it is usually transacted. Right. Because I'm sitting in a really comfortable place and I realize that, you know, and I'm grateful for that. And I try to use that comfort to, it's going to sound really hokey, but um, you know, help people help to make things better. Try to say things that I heard this thing with um, a songwriter who was talking about how songwriters have a responsibility to people. And I was like, that is such a great way to think about this, that you have a responsibility to give us, give a, a, a listener a language to understand things they might go through and be incapable of articulating or not even realize are, are happening. You, you create this language for understanding one's emotional kind of affective or spiritual reality and you're responsible for that. And I really, that, that idea is really wonderful to me and I hope it's true. I really do. I really hope that things that I can make or do or say can actually create a sympathetic vibration with somebody's experience. And they'll think, Oh yeah, me, you know, I feel like that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And thank you for seeing it. And thank you for showing that making something of it, um, can be kind of a way to short circuit a process that's difficult. I want to I want to put a pin in something you said and just highlight it for folks. Yeah. Or and use uh, so as an example to highlight what you're saying. Like one of the things when you mentioned the um, your, what what it is about yourself that you you, you find joy in and in yeah. solace, and then how that butts up against the the other human in the room with you and what brings them. Yeah peace and solace and satisfaction. Sometimes doing a shitload of busy work, actually somebody walks out at the end of the day and it's like, yeah, 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 you know, for other people, that's misery. Um, In So Percussion, the four of us are four wildly different people who all have different work habits Mm -hmm. that are all objectively obsessive in their own unique way. I'm 16 years into it and I cannot not reply to an email. Mm hmm. Because some part of me somewhere believes that there's a, like, I see you mm-hmm. in a response to an email. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I know that you've put time in this email, so I want to just say, I saw it. I got you, buddy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it also means that everybody gets 4,000 emails every time they send an email. You know, like, and, you know, but Adam and Jason, Eric is much more quietly obsessive and is, like, very organized. Like, everything. But over time, we have grown to stop pushing on each other's obsessive qualities and allow it and allow it to do the thing that it does naturally. Like sometimes 
a vine is just going to always grow up a thing. And every time you cut it off, the vines is going to go right back up. <laughs> and I've learned to allow that for Eric and he's learned to allow that for me. And there's just, <laughs> they've stopped making fun of me when I respond. Got it. For five years they did because it drove them crazy. And now they, I think maybe, maybe it still drives them crazy, but they understand why my particular crazy, it's important for me to feel like I'm allowed to have that in the room. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, it's just a sort of a, like, you're going to come across people who are like Elon Musk, who just are like, I'm, I'm going to make batteries and electric cars and put one in space. And what it requires to do that is a skill set I don't have and, and a drive that I don't have or some sort of obsessive quality about your personality or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You're going to come up against people. I've been obscenely close in my life to LeBron James. That's about as close to a like statistical anomaly of a human being as you can possibly have. <laughs> and you're just like, but he's in the same classroom with 17 other high school kids. He's just the one that's shooting free throws. For five hours after class. Yeah, he's taller than everybody, but no one else is shooting free throws. He's not going in yeah. and dunking for five hours. He's going in and shooting free throws. And then he backs up and shoots three-pointers for another three hours. Like, sometimes you're going to have people like that. Yeah. Sometimes you're going to have people on your team like John Paxton, who's just going to be the white guy that's always going to bury the three. <laughs> he's <laughs> never going to dunk. And so I feel like that's something I'm learning. I don't have the answer, but I'm learning the older I get to just allow – a little bit for the idea that somebody in the room is always going to be faster than me is always mm-hmm. going to be smarter mm-hmm. than me is going to get the mm-hmm. idea quicker. Jason is always going to play polyrhythms exponentially better than me for at least three or four weeks before I get close enough to me being able to play it. So that if you squint at us, it sounds close. Like mm-hmm. it drives me nuts, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's where I am right now. And so allowing for that, I, that, that sort of dissonance is important. Um, how to I think teach. That's right. I, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say how to teach people how to deal with that dissonance as a student. Cause I wish I w- had been taught how to deal with that earlier. I wish there was like a class where it was like, Hey, we're going to set this up where you have two, we're going to pair up people who, who, we, who maybe don't work well together as just a, like, or we're going to give you at bats on writing for an orchestra. Right. Like you're not going to get a premiere, but we're going to hire an audience to come in. They're going to come in at one, <laughs> three, five, and seven. There's a show. They're going to clap and then take their $35 and walk out. It's like jury duty, right? And you're going to get that experience so that when you get with the New York Phil or Waterbury Symphony or whatever it is, you don't have mm-hmm. that fear. But yeah. we, there's no infrastructure for that. It's it's all we're going to talk about the German or the Neapolitan six chord mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, Trist- yeah, the Tristan yeah. chord, you know? Mm. I like that Tristan chord. I'll tell you what. That's a good one. Um, There's a reason it's around for as long as it has been, you know? It's yeah, good. yeah. It's funny that it has that name, too. It actually has a name, you know? Uh, I, I was thinking a little bit about the way you were talking about everybody's obsessive nature and how vines can, It's at some point, you just have to let the vine grow. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really, really smart to think about relationship that way that you are thinking about not only what's the best of everybody, but what's the worst of everybody, what's the complicated of everybody. And the way that those things come into congruence is really, really important. And it leads me to think about things like finding your compositional voice, et cetera, or even your voice as a performer, not so much as dealing in absolutes. Like if they're, you know, I have a great single stroke role and I can play polyrhythms and I can do this. And I can, it's not, it's not so much the um, <clears throat> sort of items that you can achieve, et cetera, 
it's more like comic books or something where, oh, you can, you're like really, really fast yes, and you yeah. can, you can burn things with your eyes and you, you know, and so as a teacher, you're maybe more like Professor X than you are like Stradivarius teaching you how to do the one thing you know how to do. It's more like, how can I enable you to think about your specific idiosyncratic gift? And now it starts to sound like I'm talking about branding or something, which no, I'm not well, well, but exactly. as you're, a, as you're saying it though, do you but know what I'm saying? Yeah. But as a teacher, sorry, I, I, I love the watchman that was, or watchman, excuse me. That was one of my favorite yeah. Uh, yeah. COVID watches was watchman. But, <sighs> and, but as a teacher, sometimes you're, you are by default, it, it, Dr. Manhattan, where you are in your timeline, but also every point in your life is as vivid to you and every experience you've had, every failure is you, you see it in real time. And sure. so when a student's in front of you and they're, and, and they look at you and they're just like, yeah, I booked a gig playing a three hour pan gig. I'm like, cool. Do you have a real book? What's a real book? And that's like, that's where I'm like, Dr. Manhattan, I flash back to seven, 18 year old Josh taking my first gig and being like, Oh my God, I don't know what that seven means by that G chord. <laughs> you know, and being like, oh, no, don't take that gig. Don't take that gig. Take it. Turn it down. Turn it down. Turn it down. And they're just like, I'm really pumped. And I'm like, oh my God. You know, and so that's like, I'm, as Dr. Manhattan, I can look back to the past and see the future and know what's going to happen. And, and sure. I feel like, what's my responsibility there? The comic book thing that really, really cracked something open for me. That was good. Oh, all the music that I love, I, I don't love because of absolutes. I think I used to. I think mm. I used to think, wow, that's like real like incredible counterpoint. That's like the best counterpoint. Or like, you know, I got this, I had this video of, um, I had these drummer videos growing up, you know, a practice, get inspired, et cetera. And I had a, the Dave Weckl video and he does a single stroke roll. It's just, I mean, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. It's like pitched, you know, just like. Wah, it's so fast. <laughs> it's like you sand know? on tissue paper. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And I was really attracted to that. And my, my dad's a pianist, concert pianist. I was really, really attracted to what he could what he could pull off technically. Mm -hmm. Um I started to think more about about it as I got older and stuff. And the music I most loved was the music that most sounded like somebody, not mm -hmm. like something that was objectively measurably more successful or virtuosic, but like somebody, you know. Like, wow, um, you listen to Art Blakey play the drums and you're like, okay, that's, that's him, you know? Um, but you look at, you look at musicians. I mean, this is the other thing too, that I think we're bad as human beings and why I feel like it's important. I'm trying to force myself to think of people in history in terms of days, not years or generations, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. John Coltrane was who he was because he can at the drop of a hat play any chord in any inversion in any key uh -huh. Uh -huh. because he practiced out of a book obsessively. Now, uh -huh. if you want to be John Coltrane, you got to do that. But then, right. but you also can look at people like we look at a guy like Tchaikovsky uh -huh. and over time, our negativity bias has sort of like tried to squeeze out all of the possible things and turned him into this, like maybe negativity bias is the wrong word, but this desire to sort of see history as a like clean box. Oh, Tchaikovsky, uh -huh. like he's a, do you, you know, at the time, being gay was really hard, right? For Tchaikovsky? Like, mm -hmm. we're talking about that a lot right now. Mm -hmm. Like, what if we studied Tchaikovsky and looked at his music and tried to hear what we were hear what he was writing in the context of a guy who was incredibly troubled and, try, and could not? Like, let's look at a guy mm -hmm. like, I, I don't know. Like, I just, I'm, I feel like over time, we, we see, look at Bach, like, 
yeah, he had a gig every Sunday. He also had 23 kids. How many do you have, Andrea? Two? Um, Big announcement, Josh. I have 23. <laughs> you have 23. <laughs> but like, so yeah, like. When I have, you, I've got two, but I do have a dog now. Did we, did we talk I about think that? Yes, I think we've talked about that. But my, my larger point is I think seeing this stuff as like. I'm a little exhausted of seeing these things as as binary, as a one or a zero. Yeah. Either Tchaikovsky was great or he's part of white supremacy. Either Beethoven is great or he's part. It's like, no, 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 no. Like he's part. Either John Coltrane is great or he's oh, he's a jazzer. It's like, no, no, no. He's right up there with Beethoven. So is Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. So why? Because these were all folks toiling away, grinding it out. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're coming back a lot to this idea of the grind, like shooting three yeah, for five hours, this kind of thing. No, it's it's interesting, man. It's it's not something that I. It's something I try not to think about and put on mm-hmm. myself. Um, to be why honest, do you, why do you and think not, that is? Because I tortured myself with it for a really long time in ways that weren't super healthy, mm-hmm. and that I and and I watch my kiddos, and I think it's really hard to hold a violin bow. It's really hard to get it up high enough on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. Are you not interested in that? Because if you're not interested in that, let's not do that. It's it's really how I'm feeling about it. Because there's something that's going to light you up inside. LeBron James didn't shoot those free throws and hate it. I'm sure I will will die on this hill. He was doing that because it was doing something for him. It was feeding. It was nourishing, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in making people grind through things that they don't find nourishing or to get back to the vine and the obsessiveness that doesn't lock into your personality in some way. Now you can lock into your neurosis through your practice, or you can log it and lock into your mm. best self through your practice. And you can lock into your best self through your practice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And totally. for a long time, I think I fed, um, I fed a beast, a demon that I could not control with my practice. That was really real. And that's not something I want to do anymore. And if it means that I'm worse, if it means that my career doesn't go as far, if it means that I'm obscure, so be it. But I will not make that deal anymore. You know, I just won't. Um, That's not the same for everybody, though, right? That's not that's not everybody. Not everybody is going to obsess to the point that they break. Well, but I I, I think I want to stick with the grind thing, because I think what you're doing is adapting your grind. I mean, that's the other thing, too, that like I don't ever. I don't ever want anybody to think like, oh, just, sorry, you just got to do it this one way the whole time. Yeah. Sorry, if it never yeah. works for you, sorry, that just means it doesn't work for you. It's like, no, 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 Like, adapt your grind, but yeah. get out there and keep, you have a, like, you're born with an axe, and by the time when you're 90, I want to have a whole set of scalpels that I've chiseled out of that one axe, you mm-hmm. know, so that I can know exactly where to cut and only cut out the things that I want to cut out. Yeah. Um, and I hear what you're saying on that. I do, I do, but I, I just... To push back a little, I just worry a little bit about the language of like suffering through it or muscling through it or whatever, because from personal experience, that was a disaster, like capital D disaster. You know, it it's it's adapting your grind. We could we could sort of tweak the language a little bit and talk about. So maybe my grind right now is like I take a long walk with my dog and I make a smoothie. And, you know, that doesn't sound like the grind. Right. But that's what I need to do to keep myself up and going and making music and stuff. Like I, I play music that I really, really enjoy. I'm definitely not the best at any of the things that I do. And what I'm actually looking for is my idiosyncratic kind of flavor, not my Dave Weckl single stroke role. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty sure that when Dave Weckl practiced those single stroke roles, he wasn't like 
I'm grinding out. I'm, it was more just like, oh my, that feels nice in my brain. For some reason, my body can do this, right? Again, not binary, not always, but there was a reward there. There was a reward that was real, that was palpable, that encouraged him to keep going and do more because you can't get that good without it. You just can't. You can't muscle your way to that good. Well, the thing I want to highlight here, and again, like I'm not, we're having a friendly push pushback and forth here. Like I think the, the issue sometimes with a lot of people is seeking other people's rewards. Yeah, yeah, that's totally right. Like I don't that want Dave, totally right. I don't want Dave Weckl's snare drum roll, but as a seventeen-year-old kid, I think I need it. And so then mm-hmm. I'm just like, well, mm-hmm. if Dave Weckl's doing it this way, then I should do. It. I gotta, I gotta practice twelve hours a day. And it's like, you mm-hmm. know, Jason Truding, mm-hmm. he needs to practice one hour for every six of mine. I, and I know I'm not saying that to blow smoke up his ass or make me look like a dummy. It's just <laughs> true. It's true. In order for him to get to me to get to the same level as Jason, I have to work harder. Now, if we're playing a steel drum piece, it's yeah. reversed. <laughs> you know, I can sight read it. Jason cannot, you know. Right. And I think seeking other people's rewards is a bad idea and will lead you mm-hmm. nowhere all the time mm-hmm. other than to other people's rewards, which mm-hmm. you'll realize are theirs and not yours. And they mm-hmm. don't want them. They don't want to let them go. The other thing I want to say that I as a way of pushing back on you is in, in bring as a, in bring back your comic book analogy is that mm-hmm. one of the things I feel that I love about comic books is that their trauma is their superpower becomes mm-hmm. their superpower. And there's always, they always have a weakness. There's like kryptonite or there's something that will bring them down at the end of the day. But it's this, their greatest insecurity is the thing that they then can reverse and turn into the superpower. And I have felt like for me, I've always wanted to strive to turn every traumatic moment of my life, whether it be my dad's death or a bad tour experience or a great concert to Mm -hmm. turn those moments of like, Whoa, something happened as like, I'm just going to put that in my bag and I'm going to, I'm going to wield it as a Cape. It's Mm -hmm. no longer a hindrance. At least if I have that mindset, I'm more apt to actually (laughs) succeed than I am to say, uh, I give up. No, I mean, I, I think it's it's great to be able to look at an experience that's difficult and and make it into your, you know, x-ray vision, whatever. Um, I would feel uh, a little strange telling somebody to, um, putting it on somebody to not only process whatever it is, people have gone through things that are way worse than things that I've gone through, but I feel weird putting it on somebody and saying like, you know what? you could turn this objectively awful thing into a strength and then, then sort of expect that or whatever. It's probably true in some way that, that things can be kind of recuperated and can become strengths. I mean, I think I, I think I do believe that, but in terms of looking at uh, kids today with how they think about the grind, like that doesn't feel like it's part of that. That doesn't feel like part of the conversation entirely. Um, especially when you think about what kind of burdens people really do carry, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, let's, 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 I'm going to say that actually, I don't actually know. I don't actually know how to, um, you know, in a, in a way that's healthy for them, talk to a student about profoundly difficult, use the word trauma, traumatic experiences and encourage them to turn it into like a superpower, whatever. Like I just, I just don't know. I mean, there's, well, this is, let me give it, let me give a tiny example. Like what is the, there are sometimes you've been to therapy. I've been to therapy. Like, yeah, 
sometimes your trauma is misplaced and your 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 reaction to the stimulus in the environment is causing you to then cycle out of control and f- view that thing as overly important mm-hmm. to your actual life. Mm-hmm. As a teacher, that can manifest itself in simple performance anxiety mm-hmm. where the mere act of making someone play a show is so destructive that they burst into tears. Mm-hmm. If you are studying with me and you've told me you want to be on a stage, this is where it goes back to the, like, hold my hand and jump. Mm -hmm. I need you to agree that for the next four years or whatever time you're with me, I will never, I need you to trust, not agree. I need you to just trust that I will never put you in any situation that you might not encounter when you're out in the world doing something. And I will make sure that you're never genuinely harmed. Mm. That sort of trust, I feel like like the reasonable person expectation is sort of like slowly decaying and getting patina mm-hmm. on it. And it worries me because if a traumatic, ex- if harm can be defined as breaking down on stage because somebody, you had nerves. If that's mm-hmm. harm in the same way that getting beat up on the street because you're transgender is harm. As a teacher, that's where I have a hard time like being like, I think you're just nervous and you need to play the show mm-hmm. and you need mm-hmm. to have a bad experience where mm-hmm. you walk. And because you need to realize that your perception of what will happen to you is oversized and you're putting way too much importance on that particular feeling. And so sometimes mm-hmm. the answer is, sorry, jump with me. You're playing pieces of wood with me at seven o'clock. There's going to be 2000 people here. They're, oh no, no, yeah, we're not rehearsing. I'm going to do this and you're going to stop six beats after. Like, that's terrifying, but sometimes, sometimes that's the answer. And the older I get, the more I teach. Like, maybe that's where you and I are going to disagree, and we'll check back in in 10 years to see how many students we've ruined. Um, <laughs> um, but to me, I, I only I only say that because that's been my experience. The number of times I've walked on stage to play with John Modeski. Mm-hmm. Horrifying. Horrifying. Yeah. I've never felt more insecure about my ability to hang but when I got done, he was just like, want to grab beer? I was like, oh, wait, you mean you don't hate me because I completely ruined your piece? <laughs> you know, and it was fine. It's just like, OK, all right. Now, the next time I'm up there with him, I'm less afraid. And I think I'm just voicing like that's a struggle for me as a teacher. Where's my eth- yeah. that, where's the ethical line for me there? What am I ethically bound to force my students to understand about the fears they have, what are real, what are, what's not real. I mean, family trauma, a death in the family, like I'm not, I've experienced that too. And I've had people say things to me in in positions of authority that have been like, that was the wrong thing to say, but I'm a big boy and I'll move on. But like, so I'm very aware of that, but sometimes it's just like, I think you're afraid. I don't honestly like I don't think this kind of situation has really come up for me. I don't think mm. that I've been in a situation where I've had where I've made the claim that if you trust in the thing that we're about to do that is terrifying you, I guarantee it's going to work out. Like I have Not, never been I've never been in that situation. I wouldn't say know? work out, but or that I would do no harm, right? Like I, I think um I just don't have the same level of confidence, I suppose, in my own ability to read a situation and to know the sort of therapeutic value or lack thereof of a situation to, to make that happen. You know, and, you know, you mentioned 
therapy. Yeah. I mean, that was like 15 years of my life, you know, like that was a long time to think about how I could successfully get out and do the thing that I most love to do and most want to do without, you know, um, going backwards, uh, even, even a little bit, even a microscopic step back. Mm-hmm. And you always, you always do, of course you always do, mm-hmm. but boy, if that, if that, if this, these professionals for a decade and a half fully focused, you know, um, there, there's a lot to, there's a lot to understand about what people are carrying around. And I just, I don't, I don't think I've been in an equivalent situation because I don't, um, I don't worry about the kids these days so much. There are, there are things that I'm like, you know, I wish people were um, in touch in a different way than some of the ways that people are maintaining contact with each other. But I, I, you know, that's not for me to decide. I am generally pretty encouraged by my students. I'm encouraged by their advocacy for themselves in ways that I think we, we maybe disagree on a little bit. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think I reserve the right to change my mind about all these things, as you said earlier, but if I'm, if I'm being honest, like my sort of micro beefs with the way people operate in generations uh, younger than, than my own are so far outweighed by the things that they have figured out and further the work that they're going to need to do. Like, I want to help them do that work more than I want to be like, turns out I was right about how much you were supposed to practice counterpoint. You know, like, I don't, I'm not going to die on that hill, you know, but not, not, no part of me wants to die on that hill. I just want to be like, what do you need? Because you have to carry forward um, the idea of, living and working responsibly under these conditions. It's more, for me, it's more like, what can I give you? I think you're saying that too. I think you're saying, I want to give you this tool. And the way, what I think I need you to do is trust me and jump. You know, Um, I've not been in a situation where I felt like if somebody trusted me and jumped, I would give them the tool that they needed. You know, I I just don't really, you know, I I don't really. Well, and to be quite totally honest with you as a friend that I have known for a while and have worked in intense educational situations. Yeah you need to give yourself a little bit more credit because, or you need to trust yourself a little bit more here, buddy, because like the, Mm. one of the things that has been frustrating for me about teaching is I feel like I went into as a student and was like, I didn't really know. It's not like I knew chamber music was something I was pumped about. Yeah. Uh, I knew steel drums was something I was pumped about and I like to teach. Um, But when I said, I want to play, I want to be a marimba soloist. And then mm-hmm. somebody was like, well, here's what you got to do. I would be like, okay, I have to, I clearly have to know a shitload of marimba solos and I got to do this and this and this. The number of times, number of people in the last 13 years of SOSI, in my 16 years in so percussion that I've seen start a group and then have some major meltdown and then not continue the group, I would say is in the num- is in the low twenties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ethically, now as a forty-one year old, uh, I'm feeling less guilty about feeling like I pushed them into doing this, but also mm-hmm. questioning what it is what it is I told them thirteen years ago. What could I have said then that might have allowed for that meltdown to come a little later? <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. um, I think. I think we 
I mistaught how much of what soap percussion does actually is the 10,000 hours. Hmm. We're not good budget. We're, we're, uh, I'm just making up budgets. I've learned how to do a spreadsheet over the last 13 <laughs> years, but it's not like I didn't study QuickBooks. Like what I've done is I've spent four hours a day rehearsing with my band members, bandmates for the first 10 years of so percussion. And only now are we sort of like once a week, you know, mm-hmm. getting together. Mm-hmm. But I'm sorry. Like that you, if you can't, there's like that dumb thing. It's like, if you can't actually play together for a whole show four or five times in a row and the same audience mm-hmm. can come and see it four or five times in a row and see, see a, 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 a representative version of that group every time. Mm-hmm. You're not going to do it. In the ver- mm. in the way that we're doing it, like you have yeah. to understand, you need more at bats. You need you need to play play a time. We we I'm sorry. The difference is is we've just failed a lot more than you have, and we're better at it. Mm-hmm. And it's I wish I could go back. That's the one thing I wish I could go back. That I was that I, I want to. I wish I would impart more on those students of like, don't worry about budgets. Don't mm-hmm. think about the IRS. Do not think about QuickBooks. Do not think about stage plots. What a DI box is. Who cares what an XLR cable and what an SM57 is? What's phantom power? Doesn't matter. Practice with each other. <laughs> Take your drums mm-hmm. out to the coffee shop and play. Go out to the square. Play. Pull somebody in your room. Play. Why? Because that's what we did. And now when I walk on stage with those three dum-dums, I have... It's the safest place in the world. Hmm. The place where Paul Robeson stood is the place yeah. I feel the most comfort. Why? Because I have no worries what's going to happen with those three goofballs. Yeah, yeah. And I want that for my students. Like, that's the thing I want. I want them when they're doing the thing that actually brings them in the bacon to yeah. have zero fear and have a fucking blast doing it. Um, you know, and again, like we could check it in 10 years and yeah, look, look at the bodies I, we've I mean, left behind us in our wake. But <laughs> I hope we do. I hope we check in more than that. Often we'll keep like, you know, banging this drum, so to speak. Yeah. Well, uh, well, Andrea, uh, before we wrap up here, do you have any final, any, any final thoughts here? I, I've kept you, I've stolen an hour and six minutes of your life already, but I, I have appreci- an hour and six minutes. Wow. Yeah, Josh. Time flies when you're chewing fat. Time flies when the fat gets chewed. Yeah. Um, anything more I want to share? Uh, hmm. Well, or I can ask Maybe, you uh, one final question as well. Why don't you ask me a final question? Because I can't think of anything I want to share. What is something you were forced to learn about yourself this year mm. that you are not taking forward with you? Oh, interesting. Not taking forward in what sense? Like something I want to kind of like go. Well, something like a skill set or something you had to get good at. Oh, that oh now yeah. moving out of the pandemic, you're like, ah, I'm good. I don't need to take that with me. I, don't, I want to take that with me. Even if I needed it, I don't want to, I don't want to bring it with me. Hmm. That's a really good question. Huh? So the logistical things that I had to learn. Um, okay. What I would rather not take with me is the idea that when I teach a class or do anything um, and a bunch of people are looking at me and I'm getting no feedback from them at all. And I feel terrible. The sort of self-talk after that is not a tool that I'm going to enjoy any longer. Um, that's been really hard. I find teaching really energizing and invigorating. I, I love to be in a classroom with students and I did not so much feel that on zoom very often at all. And so the skill, the thing I had to learn was this sort of, it gets back to what we're talking about. I had to divorce myself mm-hmm. from the feedback loop that encourages me to do what I'm doing. That's something I'd like to set down. 
I agree with you 100%. If you'd asked me the same thing, I, I had a hard time with the ethics of Zoom. I'll be honest hmm. with you. The And again, this goes to the access thing. It goes to people's different lives. I mean, we're all of a sudden peering into everybody's bedroom or their living room yeah, or whatever. So right. I, I, understand, I get it. But um, the ethics of not being able to require a student to have their camera on mm-hmm. was really disempowering to everybody. It actually, hmm. it actually disengages every party from each other. And like, it's like we sort of lost this idea that you have to have some sort of buy-in. Like your tuition dollars aren't the only reason you're in the room. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, have to, you have to have a little more skin in the game. Like show us your face. Let me hear mm-hmm. your voice. Um, over time, it became unethical to ask that of students. Because all a sure. student had to say was, I have anxiety or I have. And it's like, hey, bro, so do I. <laughs> I'm, I'm here on a Zoom screen with nobody. Mm. And it's crushing, crushing. You know what, though, Josh? I mean, that's, <laughs> I hear what you're saying. Uh, we're going to have another fight here on the air. But here's what, here's my, my thinking on this. What I feel like my job in that, that situation for me, yeah, it was really hard to do that work. And I felt really maybe disempowered is the word. I felt really ineffective. I felt mm-hmm. really alone. I felt like I wasn't getting what I usually get. But I started thinking about we're in a really sticky situation, a really difficult situation. These students are bearing, I believe we're bearing the brunt of it. And so my thought was like, how do I facilitate their ability to continue to function and to show up? And if they want to keep their camera off, like, I was just not, I was not dying on that hill. I was like, look, I'm going to trust you to do the thing that you need. And if you want to, you know, take advantage of that or whatever, like that's, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to trust you. And if you tell me your camera's off, your camera's off. And it's like, no, no questions asked is kind of where I was at with it. Yeah. Did did I like looking out at all those boxes that had just names in them? Like, nah, not, not really, not really at all. But I saw my position as a helper and not a, um, and I think what you're saying is like, that's how you would be able to offer your help, right? Like I th- that what you're saying is that encouraging you to step out of that, turn your camera on, let me hear your voice, show me your living room or whatever, that that is what you're regarding as the work that you can do. And I totally understand that. Well, the, the thing, I, I didn't regard that as the work that I could do. Yeah, I no, I, like, and to be clear, yeah. I, I didn't, I wasn't somebody who was like, turn your cameras on, but yeah, it was yeah. the thing that would have made learning better. Yeah. I, can say I mean, that. I thought okay. back when I, so I was being observed over Zoom, right? And mm. and I, I'd be observed and people would be like, I think, you know, the cameras are all out, cameras are off. And I'd be like, yes, they are, you know? And I, I didn't love the idea that I should say, um, say something different about that. You know? Yeah, it's, it's just it's weird, but it, it's funny. It's like, it's such a small, it seems like such a small thing, but I think this is the crux of where we're kind of like entangling on these things. Mm-hmm. This kind of idea of what's your, where does your, start over. I think you feel incredibly responsible to your students and like you can offer them a particular set of things that have, um, that there's a buy-in prerequisite that is very particular to the Josh Quillen method. That is not the buy-in prerequisite for mine, Mm. but maybe we'll be in another global health geopolitical crisis. And my thing will get, you know, threatened in some way. And we we can have that conversation. I think we actually, the Venn diagram of our two approaches, I think overlaps way more than 
our negativity bias yeah. about our disagreement is allowing us No, I think us that's to right. Yeah, I think that's um, totally right. The thing for me, uh, I've been thinking a lot about shared spaces uh-huh. and what the definition of that. Zoom became a shared space. Zoom is our classroom. You know, and when you yeah. walk in a classroom, you have to agree not to fart. You have to agree not to burp out loud. Like there's things you can't do that you could do in your home. Yeah. And now all of a sudden your home is this shared space in a weird digital way. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that currency, I think the student loses more than the teacher in that mm-hmm. moment. Now, again, there's there's other issues or people on the spectrum that have problems. I, I get it. But yeah. I would say for me, the thing moving forward, no hybrid, no hybrid classes. Yeah, I would if, like to be in body as much as possible. If I, I, I just could not. Even just movement through the space, right? Like it was so weird not to be able to move through the space. Even now, it's like, I want to get up. I want to walk with you. I want to like wave my hands around more and stuff. It was so confining in those ways. And yeah, all those, the ways that the cameras were off just meant that the little bit of bounce back you could sometimes get wasn't also wasn't happening. And so that skill that I developed was to be like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. Let's go pet the dog. Yeah. You know, there's, and I'll set, I'll set that one down. Yeah. This it's, it's a, it's a, yeah. I, I feel like I, I didn't realize that I didn't actually, and sorry, this is going to sound terribly insensitive. I don't want to care about if a student of mine has an autoimmune disorder hmm. because I want, I need that person in the room. Like, and if that person's not in the room, I'm, what they're doing is watching a steel band rehearsal because I can't actually teach both. Mm-hmm. And then the person is paying $25,000 a semester <laughs> to watch a steel band rehearsal. That is an abdication. That's an ethical problem for me. Yeah, sure. And sure. so moving forward, I feel like if I can, if I could be like no zoom anymore. Yeah. Because it, the product is better. And if that means I have no students with autoimmune disorders for the rest of my life and I get labeled a whatever, like, you know, that's, that's the ethical quandary I'm having because I have sure. students with those disorders and I don't want to disenfranchise them. On the other hand, they've just watched me run a rehearsal for a year and I don't think they got a whole lot out of it. Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe I'm discounting what they got out of it, but. Um, yeah. Or maybe you need to trust trust them to know what they need and, and not do, maybe that, maybe they'll be like, you know what? I can't be in the room with Josh. And I don't think I'm getting, the thing that he would offer me. And maybe the solution isn't for them to then come into the room. Maybe the solution is for them to come to my studio where their, where their camera can be. <laughs> Are you poaching? Are you poaching my students? I'm stealing your folk is what's happening. All Carlton right. In college, Northfield, Minnesota, <laughs> the greatest Direct of all poachers. From NYU. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, listen, Andrea, on that note, on that poaching note, I will let you go. I've, uh, we're now at an hour and 15 and, um, uh, it's getting hot in my room. I, I, it's 9,000 degrees here and I don't have this AC on and I'm currently a hot mess, bro. So I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to go, go or leave, go sit in the cold room for a bit. Um, it was great to see you, Josh. Thanks for um, the conversation. I love that we got to connect this way. Yeah. Likewise. If, likewise. If it means records got to be on. Let's do this. Man. <laughs> also, uh, I wish you'd had your camera on this time. It was kind of unnerving, but you know, whatever you got to do. Yeah. I mean, imagine if I did every podcast like this. Oh, I like that picture of you, actually. Yeah, that's what it's like to study with Josh Quillen if I just had my thing on all the time. But, well, hey, um, Andrea, one final thing. You yeah. look like you've lost weight, my friend. It's true. I noomed. You noomed. Oh, I, noomed. I know. Do you talking. know what noom yeah, is? Yeah, 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 I knew. I did. Uh, the, so on Super Bowl Sunday, um, we had some friends over and we got some pizza and 
I mean, I was straight up like taking pizza from children. And I was like, look, man, we, we got to be in a healthier relationship here. <laughs> like I just elbowed that kid for that piece of pizza. You know, <laughs> I pushed a kid in the swimming pool. Uh, to yeah, get his pizza. Max, I mean, Max will be like, Hey, where's the, where's the pizza? And I'm like, sorry, man. It's, it's, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Anyway. Yeah. So after Super Bowl Sunday, I, uh, I joined Noom and I, I've been running and I've been, been eating well, been trying to do things, you know, a little differently. Well, it's paying off, bro. Stay on Thanks. the grind. Because <laughs> it makes me feel good. <laughs> All right, man. Love you. Take it easy and we'll chat soon. Love okay? you. To be continued. Bye. All right. See you, buddy. Bye, pal. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out. Liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on uh, in so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder. Um, just a really nice guy. Very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check him out. And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan centric. You can check him out at mango chow, C-H-O-W, clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mango chow, clothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>